Alright, alright, this is Horns Up. I'm Animesh. And I'm Peter. And today we are talking live albums. Yes, live albums. That's what happens when you take an entire album and you try and perform it live without any fuck-ups. Or you don't. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, man. The whole concept of the live album, it completely changed for me when I watched MTV behind the scenes or something for Kiss alive oh yeah i've heard yeah? that story you heard that story <laughs> yeah. and on it they reveal that uh, kiss actually didn't play that well on the concert and so they went back to the studio and overdubbed their parts and my face was or my reaction was just like what the fuck i've been lied to yeah but again i wouldn't put it past kiss i mean come on just look at their whole persona and stuff like that but yeah but I doing a live album for a metal band that just uh, completely changes the game right like if we were to do that and news leaks out probably no metalhead will ever respect you again but now we're talking about kiss man <laughs> kiss is in metal <laughs> i mean i love kiss but kiss is in metal i mean some of the cool metal at least acts that have released uh, live albums what i've enjoyed is of course uh, iron maiden keep doing it every decade or so yeah but you're still avoiding the question what would happen if a metal band or if you got to know that a metal band went in and overdubbed a bad performance for a live album uh, i'm going to be both ways it depends on the band i mean uh, I would be surprised if a band like you know actually wait did between and buried between the buried and me release a live album? I think they did, right? Yeah, and now if if they can pull off, because their stuff is not easy to play, hmm. you have to realize that. But say if you have your hardcore punk or man, imagine mixing a hardcore punk live set, <laughs> <That> right? <laughs> recording a hardcore punk live <laughs> yeah. set properly, or like a grindcore. I mean. Just alluding back to our last uh, episode, th- that's not easy at all. You're still avoiding the question. <laughs> ah, <laughs> I would be very disappointed. I mean, I'm just thinking back. I'm not sure as yet if, because two of my favorite live albums that I listened to growing up, one was the uh, Guns N' Roses one that okay. they put out and also the Aerosmith one. The names are kind of completely lost to me at the moment. But... If I found out that they, and again, probably they increase the volume of the yeah, crowds. Yeah, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not talking about mastering. Mastering is a different ballgame altogether. But going in and re-recording sloppy parts. Ah, I'm pretty sure Axel Rose would have done that. <laughs> so I, I wouldn't put that past him. Um, yeah, I would be disappointed. Because for me, till I saw Guns N' Roses, that was the next best thing, man. Yeah, sitting in my bedroom, it playing it out really loud on the stereo. Yeah, and making sure that you can hear the audience yeah. and the audience cheering and you sing along and you sing along, with, you sing along yeah. with them. Yeah, <laughs> completely. Like uh, my favorite live albums, like my favorite live albums would probably be Iron Maiden's Rock in Rio. Boy. I've played that shit I don't know how many times. In fact, I used to practice playing along to that entire concert. Because, uh, yeah, that live experience just couldn't be replicated anywhere else. Um, that was That's one. I'm a huge fanboy for both SNM as well as Cunning Stunts, as well as Live Shit, Binge and Purge. I don't know how many times I've seen those uh, DVDs or just videos. I'll, I'll say it out loud. I've illegally downloaded all of them. Countless times. So, sorry, Lars. To we, yeah, we live sorry, in third countries. <laughs> yeah. Uh, then again, I did buy your albums. And I did buy a ticket and didn't get to watch you because I was at Gurgaon when you guys didn't perform. Whatever. I know it was a safety issue. I'm still pissed. Um, anyways, I, I I really loved uh, Death's Vivus even before it was called Vivus because you could get both those... Uh, you could get you could get both those sets, the one in LA and the other one in Eindhoven. Uh, you could get both of them online as such. So yeah. I love that live performance. Um, there are so many of them. And it truly would suck if a band, uh, if any of these artists would overdub their sloppy parts. But here's the thing. After having played music and having played music live, um, the sloppiness is actually part of the energy yeah, I, that's I, there. I, and... Yeah, 
like even on these albums it's not 100% exactly like the uh studio album and that's what makes it a capture or a portrait or a documentary of sorts of that moment in time it's excellent yeah but here's my question for you <laughs> having said that what do you think about say watching bands live performance and them playing the exact same way or the exact same uh, notes as they did it in the studio okay so um i'm a bit divided on that and that's because of music genres or because of basically lack of live members uh devin townsend uses backing tracks yeah right uh, because he can't get anaka out each and every time he performs so if you're using a click track or you're using a backing track but you can hear the entire uh thing being played out live i think that's fine um lip syncing is a different ball game altogether yeah. that is just a complete no no i'm no, i don't i don't mind using click tracks to make it to make sure that everybody is playing on time and if you're talking about replicating the studio album well that's a uh, album format that seems to be really popular these days yeah. right it's increasing and you're seeing a lot more anniversary tours coming up of uh, albums that you've heard in entirety god knows how many times and now the bands finally realize that hey people want to hear the entire album live too i mean king diamond did it with abigail yeah. recently uh i happened to see devin townsend perform ocean machine in entirety a lot of it because of the samples etc you can't replicate those things with a five piece band unfortunately so he did resort to using samples and that's absolutely fine because it was very visible that devin townsend was there and it was him delivering that performance it was authentic i think that's the word that captures it authenticity you'll feel it if you see it in front of you i think that's we kind of summed up our thoughts on live albums quite well yeah that uh, went on for quite a bit But I didn't know I didn't realize we both get so worked up about it. No, I mean, I think that that's the difference over probably years of attending live performances and spending so many years unexposed to these bands performing live. So, you know, you have that entire feeling or you have that entire emotion to finally watching your favorite band live and for me also like just to add listening to the Entombed uh, album because we're speaking to Entombed listening to clandestine it was quite interesting just to see the way they kind of played it and i'm not giving too much away from our interview with alex but it was quite interesting just to hear about you know what went back uh, into making the album so yeah so there are two perspectives here on this interview um there's the perspective of how entombed went ahead and made this album and then there's the perspective of performing this entire album live and it's a wonderful listen so let's dive right in here is alex from entombed talking about clandestine live we have another special guest on horns up today I'd like to welcome alex from swedish death metal band entombed thank you thanks for having us yeah it's 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 great to speak to you and you know just to kind of get started and kind of look at back to your roots uh, how did you discover metal and like if you could tell us what is the first metal band you heard um i mean i grew up with uh, kiss and iron maiden i mean if you go way back that's my first introduction was probably alice cooper but that was like before even knowing like about music but seeing Alice Cooper on on the Muppet show was my first um uh, like opening the door into this world of uh, cool things uh so that's my my earliest memory and then probably 5 minutes later one of our a friend on like the, the like a neighbor uh probably had destroyer or something like that and after that I went and found destroyer and rock and roll over in like a sort of a flea market so i bought them like very very cheap and that's i still have those and they're, they're still like my you know treasured uh, albums even though they're nothing original uh, like no first you know original pieces or anything but they i love those sleeves and uh, and that's like the the gateway into 
what ended up being you know what I've been doing for the rest of uh, my life you know so it, it went from there to Iron Maiden and all that whole world with you know ACDC and the the classic metal bands into uh, like maybe five years later or something meeting up with Nick and and other people and getting into the whole world of Metallica and Venom and Slayer and you know so we, we, you just add more music you were always looking for more and and I remember hearing like Slayer and stuff for the first time that's you know you could really feel that this was something that was kind of dangerous you know so it was more, you had to learn to like go out of the your own extreme music at that time which was hard rock and then go into the next level and then you know you end up with morbid angel and stuff like that after a while and believing that that was like i remember like bands like cryptic slaughter you were looking for faster things all the time at that yeah. point the you know the hard rock world turned into bon jovi and stuff like that and nothing you know nothing bad about them but it ended up being more like the pop music of course yeah. it got more radio friendly and everything you know and and so a lot of people then went looking for you know faster and you know i remember accept fast as a shark and you know that was like the fastest thing you'd heard at that time and, and then other things came along it's cool you bring up slayer because the last time animation i met we were talking about the time slayer played in india and animation happened to be at the show and what an awesome show it was cool so, yeah man completely two hour brutal assault yeah <laughs> yeah that's it's timeless you know it's like we had the the joy of actually playing with Slayer around the 2000. We actually played with both Iron Maiden and Slayer around in Europe and in Sweden and, and other places. And, and it was just, you know, amazing. You know, you go into a world and it doesn't matter if, if uh, 20 years have passed or 30 years have passed, it's, it's still, you go straight into that energy and and world of theirs and it's awesome you know yeah it is so um, let me just jump right in um obviously when you're discovering all this music at a time when there is no internet and so that means there's no easy availability of albums or songs uh were you a tape trader yes uh we uh, i mean internet back then was of course regular mail you know so you and and fan scenes though so, you know we like kerrang and, and magazines like that uk press was like the the mainstream and then the next level was these fan scenes like slayer mag out of norway and there was a few magazines out of denmark mega metal or something that's sort of where we would read about metallica or something like that and then you would be happy when some some of the more mainstream magazines when they also did some pieces on like you know bands like that um but uh, then finding you know bands like Sadus or morbid angel or repulsion or you know these demo bands that we sort of got into so that you know we have fun memories of uh, of finding music that way um which is is really cool and i guess it's probably the same now when when you find you you still get as happy when you find something new but i guess it's also uh you spend less time probably on each thing you find so maybe some things you need a little time to actually digest so that it becomes your new favorite thing if it's not like a a really sort of instant love affair with with something but i guess completely agree with you on that yeah should, i should uh, kind of put you on the spot here because you're suddenly seeing a revival of you know the cassettes and i was actually listening to a band last night called undead uh, cool. that put out a demo and you're suddenly seeing bands that are more uh, kind of favoring that format again which is I don't know like after the vinyl revival I was really surprised 
to see a cassette revival happening, especially in the underground scene. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, especially us, since we sort of come from that era, of course, we feel happy about it. Um, I remember having, all of a sudden, having some requests from people in places like Indonesia and, and stuff, and they wanted to, they asked if they could release something on cassette. And I was like, damn, that's really cool that people actually do this. I, I, I didn't even think that people could play cassettes anymore, that there was, you know, like cassette players. I don't know many people in Sweden that actually have them anymore. I mean, I, I still have them, but, I'm, but I also still have like a VHS player and, and most people don't have that either, you know. Yeah, I still have my Walkman. Cool. <laughs> I, I love all that. There's something different about that whole format and that whole era, I guess. But just kind of skipping forward, uh, you started Nihilist in uh, 1987, uh, and you kind of previously mentioned also meeting Nikkei. So how did you kind of form the whole band back then? We actually met at a summer camp, probably around 86. And What was the summer camp for? Yeah, me and Nick and, and uh, my friend Leif and uh, Daniel, who we started after that, I wanted to start a band after meeting uh, after that summer. And, and that's what ended up being Nihilist after, uh, you know, down the line. And uh, basically we, we were 12, 13 and 14 maybe, uh, in, in, in the, just wanted to play music and most people thought that what we were doing was pure noise and that we should play real music instead um, and had no problem telling us that, of course, to our face, you know. Uh, but for some reason, we kind of liked what we were doing, but it was, of course, nothing that we thought that you could ever take beyond did you guys have uh, formal really? guitar lessons or something or or did you learn things on the go? I had taken like classical guitar lessons, but ah, I had a guitar band, uh, you know, how you play stuff in a band. I had no idea. That was through meeting Nick. He was a year older than us uh, and he had already sort of played in a few bands constellation like he, he always i don't know when he started but he always i guess he always knew what he wanted to do so so he uh, kind of showed us what you actually do so uh, uh, and i think he he probably had drum he, i know he he took drum lessons i know and i and uh, I, I took guitar lessons but but he was already back then he was a great guitar player already in my world. Right. How did the whole like switch happen from Nihilist to Entombed? There never really was a switch in our minds at all. The only thing was we knew that there was another band in the US called Nihilist and okay. that they had started probably contacting us saying that they already had the name blah 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 and, and when we were getting close to doing an album i think we just thought that maybe it's best to to switch the name anyway so as i remember it we knew about this us band and and the side story is that the the, the guys in that band they're actually this band called blackberry smoke now okay and they so they were also on eric for a while <laughs> Right. <laughs> years later of course they they play this sort of Leonard Skinner type music now but uh, so it's a small world but that's I, as I remember it was just Nick realizing uh, how this could be a problem down the line and at one rehearsal he had just uh, found a book like a small like pop fiction type you know, <coughs> mystery book or something and I think it was called Entombed and he just liked the way the word sounded and I remember that it was a weird word and we didn't really know what it, it was like nobody can still pretty much pronounce it. If you, if you don't know what it is and you don't know that it's a band, it's like, 
what is that word, you know, but um, so that's basically nothing changed, but the bass player. And that was also another reason why we switched, I guess, apart from there being another band, it was that we, we played with Johnny in Unleashed and he, uh, I think him and Nicky, I don't know, they, they fell out over something. And I think it was just a way to sort of, without asking him to leave, I think he, that was uh, like, okay, so we, we changed the band name. So one band does not exist from one day to the other, but everything else was the same. You know, the, the music, everything on the first album was stuff that we did as Nihilist. So since you're talking about this, one, one of the things I'm very fascinated about is just how Sweden was such a hotbed for death metal in the 90s. I mean, along with you, you had bands like Dismember, Grave. Uh, what do you feel like since looking back at least now, what was like the reasons that kind of you had all these bands sprouting out from a small country relatively like Sweden? And especially a similar kind of a sound everywhere. No idea. I mean, when it happened, there wasn't that kind of a scene. Of course, that's like with all historic events. After the fact, you can sort of to it and say that all this happened at the same time. But it was, I guess, since it's a small country and the, the distances are small. So for us, of course, it was a long trip to go to Gothenburg, which is on the other side of Sweden. But it, I mean, it's a six hour drive. I mean, and I mean, if you go to another country that's bigger, it's nothing, of course. But, uh, you know, it's it was a really small, not that many people involved. So we, you know, we got in touch with like some people that we knew back then that there was one guy who had a like a record store and a and a mail order that we sort of hung out with and through them we were sort of asked if we wanted to contribute a song to you know a, a compilation album and so that led to you know doing a few shows probably and it but it was very very small uh, and I'm sure that the same thing probably happened all over the US and, and in other countries as well. It's just that it's a lot more spread out. So it seems like, you know, it's it's less concentrated, but it's in Sweden, I guess it's easier to have a big footprint because there's just so few people that if somebody makes some noise, it's easier for the rest to hear it than if if you're doing the same in a, in a country where there's, you know, a couple of zeros more of, uh, on the amount of people. The, I guess it's easy, it's harder to get your voice heard. Probably, I, I mean that's the only thing I can think of. But because we basically thought that we were ripping off the other bands that we heard, you know, through tape <laughs> reading. So okay. However, there is a unique element of Swedish death metal, and that's the bass or guitar sound. And Entombed was one of the first proponents of it. Um, how did you arrive at that sound? It was actually my friend who started the band with, uh, Leif Kastner. He's He bought a distortion pedal and you know for his sort of last money or his family helped him or something, but he absolutely hated the, the, the distortion pedal. He thought it sounded awful. And the only thing he liked was when he put everything on 10. Uh, it was one sound that he could get out of it. And that's, you know, we thought it was, we laughed at it because it sounded so weird. But then, you know, we got started mixing it with the other guitar and that became like a, down the line, it became like a signature thing. But it's at the time we, you know, it, it was not like a, it became a thought out process, but it was an evolution, you know, so it, it uh, it happened. I, I say it, it happened as a you know a mistake almost. As a you know, he, if he had had more money, he would probably have thrown that pedal away and bought a new one. <laughs> okay, I have to ask this as a follow up. Um, so, considering that was a product of that distortion pedal, uh, eventually down the line, when you guys have better equipment, 
you mentioned this as a thought process how much time did it take you to replicate that sound but with fancier equipment um when when that first my my when my childhood friend when he left the band cuz he his family moved back to canada then the first demo we did with ufa on guitar we were not quite sure where the sound where his sound came from but we wanted to keep the sound so we actually borrowed all of leif's uh leif kastner's equipment i remember ufa borrowed his guitar his amp and his distortion pedal because we thought that it's the combination of these things probably that made the sound uh to to do that was when we did the shreds of flesh demo probably and uh, so we weren't quite sure ourselves and then ufo of course took it to the next level developing it more but it was some, somewhere around there that we figured out that okay so it it's not it doesn't it doesn't need to be the combination of that guitar and that amp and the pedal so it, it was the pedal and then he took it and then we developed it even more for the first album in the studio where Thomas Skogsberg came into the picture and mm-hmm. he helped us put it into put it on tape where he recorded it uh, so there was a lot of thought going into you know co- coming from the sort of uh unplanned thing how how the pedal got into the picture into when we were putting it on the album and it was really thought through with Thomas recording you know like uh two versions of of the HM2 guitar and putting that in stereo and then we put a third sound in the middle and together with the bass we thought that it all sounded like a cool wall of sound so it wasn't like we put only HM2 mm-hmm. on, on it as well it, that's i guess that's the difference between what we do and what other people do when they use that pedal because they use only that pedal it sounds like anyway and today yeah. you can get it uh, as a pre you know a preset in a if you buy a Kemper amp or something you can get presets with you know 1990 Stockholm death metal guitar sound yeah yeah and there are a lot of Which templates cool. available on that really cool for us it took a, it took a lot of work to get it to sound like that and uh, and um, yeah but it's it's an honor that people and and fun i think that people like it <laughs> I, i i think the bands that are kind of spent years later growing up on this music and have realized that's the only kind of sound they're going to go for but yeah. j- just to come uh, to your second album clandestine since you're releasing a live album uh, next month of it uh, what are your memories looking back so many years of the writing and recording process of it and um, it felt like it was kind of uh connected with the first album in a way that the first album was of course a collection of the demo tapes and then it kind of went straight into uh, you know it was very quick going into clandestine from what i remember and nicke did a lot of that album and he and he constantly works so he he uh uh like before we knew it it felt like we were recording in uh, the next album and we didn't even have a singer at the time i mean between the first and the second album we didn't it wasn't until after the third the, the second album that we started touring a lot and that changed you know the pace of how you put out music but between the first and the second album there was just you know a handful of shows there was no like long us tours or anything so uh nicke you know asked digby at eric if we could record a new album pretty soon after the first one probably uh, came out i don't know exactly how how long it went between them but it wasn't that that long uh, you know cuz he's a very restless guy so he was probably you you got to remember that the, it was years it was at least it was not too long but you know a couple of years making the first album and before it came out i mean you already had ideas for the second one so even though we didn't even have a singer or anything we we started working on the the second one straight away and 
And um, so that's that's kind of what I remember. And I remember the, the studio being very small. It was still like the first sunlight studio. So it's a really, really small. Today, people, of course, are having home studios probably that are bigger than what sunlight it was at the time. It was like a demo studio probably by today's standard. As, um, but it was... Um, a great place where we could sort of learn from Thomas and uh, most people probably wouldn't believe what, for example, the drums are like a half on the, on the first two albums, the drums are like half of a, a D drum kit, like a digital sort of disco kit or whatever kind Ooh. of music with the, wow. with the, that, that Thomas had. And, and he just thought that it was easier to use it because he was used to recording with that. Um, and Nicky probably hated it because it was like, it's not that, it was, wasn't was really metal to play on a... Yeah, it doesn't have feel. Uh, there are not a lot of photographs from it. I don't know if that was on purpose that we didn't want anybody to know or if it was just that we didn't have any cameras back then. But <laughs> but it, it's, uh, yeah, it's really, you know, uh, just learning and doing and doing some more. And it was... You know, the first album took like one week to record and the second album was like double the time. So it was probably like 10 days. Um, and uh, so it's really quick. And I guess it wasn't that much of a, a risk for, for Eric either. You know, it, it wasn't like it was costing him millions to record these albums. So it was like the first album cost like a thousand uh, UK uh, pounds. pounds. Wow. And the second wow probably like 2500 so of course to us back then it was a lot of money but uh, you know down the line it, it looks pretty you know it doesn't look like a, a major risk to 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 let us uh, you know go and do what we were doing even though we didn't even have a full band you know since, since you kind of uh, already spoke about it i'm just gonna jump in with how how did so you said you had the transition between albums where you had no vocalist? How did uh, Nikke become the vocalist or record vocalist on the album? We, um, uh, as I said, we we started recording the album just by like okay we might as well start, and the idea was that we would find a singer down the line. We actually had already asked a friend to join. But we were such restless souls that we didn't really think about having the time to teach him the new songs or anything. Because we, in, in the past, we had, like, doing the demos, like, you created the music in the studio anyway. So, so it was not strange to us to not have finished the songs with vocals before. So we went in and recorded, and then once it was done... I remember Nikki called me up and saying, "Like, like, do you mind if if I like put down some vocals? Because I, I, I mean, I want to try." And I was like, I, re I remember just going like, "Yeah, if you want to do it, do it." And then he did, and I think the first, the first uh, vocals that he put down, uh, I think he did more as a to show uh, the singer what to do. So he put down like a demo of what he thought it sh should be. But then we, we went in and did a second one. You know, like now it's, you know, we don't have the time to, to let somebody else try and, and get into this. So like he, he did another version and, and then that's what we kept for the album. So, so it wasn't really a, a planned thing. It was just a decision that was, was taken uh, as the album was being recorded. Right. That, that's quite interesting. Yeah. So next month, like I mentioned, you have a live version of Clandestine uh, being released. And yes. what's also pretty cool about uh, the album is there uh, it's rearranged with a, a symphony orchestra. And you also perform with uh, the orchestra and choir. So how did the whole idea for this come about? Was it something that you kind of got inspiration from somewhere or it was just something that had been in your mind for a while? It was uh, a long time coming, actually. Um, we, uh, it came out of a long, uh, you know, a, a long time of 
incidents that happened that I uh, just kept uh, uh, in my in the back of my mind. And then as opportunities to do different things arose, I just said yes to like, okay, yeah, we want to. Do we want to work with a, a th with an orchestra? Yeah, of course. Uh, I already had an idea that I had gotten through uh, some some other person mentioning that clandestine maybe work maybe would work for an orchestra. And then in 2010, somebody asked if we wanted to try and do it, and I, I just said yes. And out of that, this whole thing grew. So we did. Uh, we did the first show in 2012 or 2013, I think. Uh, we did the first sort of within the, the orchestration, and then we did one more in 2014, probably. And then we did the, the big one in, in um, that we recorded with, with Nikki and Ufa. And so it was like a, a two, two acts where the first act would be the orchestra in the focus and we were more sitting in trying not to destroy things because they were playing it you know totally like an orchestra and they they didn't really need us to be there and then the second act was us doing the album from start to finish in in our way and that was a real challenge for us because some of the songs had never been played live even back then, we didn't play all the songs on the album, and uh, you know, so so playing it from start to finish was really cool. And of course, I was a little bit influenced by bands like Slayer again, that they had played, you know, like around they had played Raining Blood from start to finish, and, and you know, people were starting to do those things. Mm -hmm. And and uh, of course, I mean, we grew even though we were never close to being like Metallica or Slayer, I mean, we grew up with that. So uh, the orchestra thing, I also, of course, knew that Metallica had done this Slayer, uh, this uh, orchestra thing, but I, I really did not want to to do the same thing. So I, I really told them, Thomas, who, who orchestrated the, the stuff, that we wanted to let the orchestra be the focus point of, uh, and not have us play the, the music and then with some strings on top. So I, I wanted it to be totally symphonic music. And then if he could add us in somewhere, if he thought that it made sense, then he could do that. So so the first, the, the album that we release now is our part. That's the, you know, the second part. And then we, uh, Hopefully, we'll put out the first part as well, the orchestra part, at a later date. So, right. um, the the reason why they're both out is that to to do this from the beginning, uh, I we created like a, a crowdfunding thing, just to be mm -hmm. able to 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 raise the money to do the the filming and recording, and uh, the people that that supported this campaign, we made a a DVD for them. With everything on, so that that's basically why the the orchestra is has been released at all to anybody uh, is because of this uh, pledge campaign um, that we that we put out. Oh, okay, Alex. Just before we let you go, I need to ask you: Can you recommend any song that we can play from the live version of Clandestine that releases next month? Which song do you pick and why? The fact that this album was recorded on the 25th anniversary of the release of the original album and that we could only do it once. This was like, we only had this one new day that we recorded. So it's all there, it's one course. And this is the first album, live, uh, the first track of Living Dead. And uh, we were really nervous you know we, we played to a sit-down audience because this was in a concert house for you know the symphony orchestra so this was the first time we actually played you know our music for a sit-down crowd so and i think you can hear that we are kind of getting into it and warming up and uh, you know as the album and the show progresses you get warmer and warmer but i kind of like how things are you know 
dangerously, you know, you, you almost, I don't know if people, other people can hear it, but you could say that it's kind of falling apart, but then you save it and then it goes into uh, to uh, the next song, you know, but this is Living Dead. Hope you like it.
I must ask you, I'm sorry to take a little bit more time, but I must ask you, and it's only because you mentioned a sit-down audience. Um, as I grow older, I find it more appealing to be in a seated audience because then I can just focus my ears on the music. Yeah. How is it like for you as a performer? It was, uh, as I said, it was the first time and it was, we hadn't really thought about that until we were actually doing it. And you, you actually realized that you performing to a crowd that sit down and of course you focus even more than on, on you know, not uh, missing a note and, and uh, sometimes that's good and sometimes it kind of make you uh, stiffer, but it was, a, it was a unique experience. And when I looked back at the filmed material and you see the audience, it looks surreal because it looks like we are moving and the audience uh, are frozen uh, from, <laughs> if you compare to what you used to in yeah. a show like that, I mean, two weeks before we did the warm-up show on a, on a cruise for, for a close-up magazine, and it was the opposite of that, because it was playing in a cruise ship at, you know, uh, maybe 12 or midnight around that time, and people had been up and drinking for, for you know, for a full day or something, so it was total chaos, you know, and, and this was the absolute opposite, you know, people as you say, sit down and they focus only on the music. And it was, uh, I think people really, it was a big change even for the audience. And I think they, they enjoyed it a lot, you know, e even though uh, it was an unusual thing for, for, for them too, probably. We've talked about the new album that's coming out. Uh, we need to know what's next for the band. Any new music, new albums on our way? Any new tours? Are you heading towards Asia anytime soon? Maybe towards India? It would be really cool. Uh, with Entombed, what's been really sort of our <laughs> signature when it comes to planning is that we rarely have a plan. We, we do what we, what we love and what comes up. And after doing this, the shows for this uh, clandestine shows, you know, me and Nick and Ufe started hanging and talking about new stuff again. And we, we, we all agreed that this is something that we should do. And, and new and ideas started flowing. Uh, and uh, hopefully, after this album has been released, we will sort of get back into uh, actually uh, finishing some of the stuff that we've already started. I mean, we, we have had some, some recording sessions uh, leading up to uh, while we were rehearsing and stuff we, we 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 played other stuff and we you know i could see that you know you we started to uh turn uh turn nicky back into thinking entombed again which is really cool to see you know you uh, yeah, and i'm really glad to hear that mm -hmm. so completely so so you you, you get nicky and Ufa in a room and and you see that like, okay, they, they start to get, uh, like, ideas straight away, which was really cool. Wait, do you hear that you guys are working? Because I just realized it's been only 12 years since we last heard an entombed uh, <laughs> release. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy that time, time moves so fast these days. I mean, back then, we had only, like, when we started the band, we had barely been alive 12 years. So if, if you would have... If you would have told us that it would be, uh, you know, I remember when when we between the between the third and the fourth album, there was a long period of time when we had these uh, sort of uh, disagreements with Eric, uh, and we wanted you know wanted to do a, the the new album uh, on another label uh, for whatever reason, and I remember that year that we did not. We had the album written and everything, uh, but we could not record it. I remember that as being the longest period of time in my life. It, and it was probably a year, but it felt like 10 years. Uh, yeah, I, I can't even begin to believe that that's how fast the time is moving. Th thank you very much, uh, Alex, for your time. We really appreciate it. Uh, and uh, we hope to speak to you soon, probably when the new album is out again. So. All the best for that and uh, horns up. Cool. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. And that was Alex from Entomb on horns up. Real informative chat, eh, Animesh? 
Yeah, it was fairly informative, especially like how he basically didn't hold back while saying how nervous they were while performing. And yes, if you really look out for it, and now that it's been put in my head, um, Live Dead actually does sound as if the band isn't a hundred percent confident. Yeah. Right. But it's still a kick-ass song, which is why it just is a really good performance. Still, I would have loved to be in that crowd and. I mentioned it on the interview but I have to say this sitting down to see a metal band is one of my new favorite things. I've yet to do that and it's going to be quite strange for me but yeah as a one off experience I don't mind seeing what it's like. But one really cool thing I enjoyed about uh, the interview also was just hearing about how they came up with that buzzsaw guitar sound. Yeah. I mean man it, it was like and this is something as coming from a person who really enjoys Swedish death metal, just to hear how simple the origins of that sound was. Oh, wow. <laughs> that <laughs> yeah, was quite a story. It boils down to one pedal. Yeah, one <laughs> pedal. <laughs> Anyways. All right, so that's a wrap on this week's episode of Horns Up. Find us on Twitter. You know where to reach us. Horns Up is at Horns Up Pod. I'm at Animesh. And I'm Trent Crusher. And why don't you actually write to us sometime? Come on. We're really dying to hear from you. You can hear the sarcasm in my voice. Even we if don't you give a shit. Even if you think we suck. Yeah, especially if you think we suck. I think we suck. Still. Anyways, that's enough rambling. Horns up. Horns up.